Hello and welcome to the What The Heck podcast. I'm your host, Glenn. Every week I explore something unexplained, talk about what it is and look at what else it could possibly be. Research is done as academically as possible and references will be given after the stories. This week, I'm looking at the Summerton Man. In the evening of November 30th, 1948, John Lyons and his wife went on a walk on Somerton Beach near Adelaide, Australia. Whilst walking, they noticed a smartly dressed man lying on the sand with his head propped up on one of the seawalls and his legs out but feet crossed. The Lyons watched as a... a The lions watched as the man raised his right arm and dropped it again. Half an hour later, as they were walking back, they noticed the man again, still lying against the seawall. He was motionless, his arms laying at his side, and mosquitoes flying around his face. The couple laughed, thinking he was sleeping off a night of heavy drinking. The next day, John Lyons went for a morning swim in the ocean. On his way out of the water, he noticed a group of people clustered around the area that the man had been the previous evening. He went to investigate the group of people, only to discover the man from the previous evening was still there. He didn't look like he'd been killed, and there was a half-smoked cigarette on the collar of his shirt as if it had fallen from his mouth. The body arrived at the Royal Adelaide Hospital later that morning. Dr John Bennett put the time of death as no later than 2am and decided that the most likely cause of death was heart failure and suspected that the man was poisoned. Doctors searched the man's pockets and discovered some tickets from Adelaide to Somerton Beach, a pack of chewing gum, some matches, two different combs and a pack of army club cigarettes but there were seven Kensitas cigarettes, a more expensive brand, inside the pack. The man had no wallet, money or identification. All of the tags had been removed from his clothing as well, meaning that investigators would have no leads by tracing the clothing. One of the pockets from the man's trousers had been repaired with some orange thread. The autopsy was carried out a day later And I'm going to go into detail about this because there's some potential clues here. If you're squeamish, skip forward to avoid it. The man's pupils were discovered to be smaller than normal and were described as unusual. The man had drooled and it was suggested that he was unable to swallow it. His spleen was described as strikingly large and firm, around three times the normal size of a spleen and the liver was distended and had congested blood inside it. Inside his stomach, his final meal was discovered. He'd eaten a pasty. More blood was also inside the stomach. The amount of blood in the organs further suggested poison, but there was nothing to suggest how he'd been poisoned. His behaviour on the evening before his body was discovered now seemed to be more in line with a poisoning than a drunken man. However, repeated tests on the blood and organs couldn't find a trace of any poison. 
The autopsy ended up not finding the cause of death at all. The gross part of the autopsy is over now, so you can stop skipping if you chose to. During the inspection, the man's lower half showed some peculiarities. His calf muscles were high and well-defined. They assumed he was in his 40s and he had the legs of an athlete. His toes were also wedged, pointing towards the middle of his foot. One expert believed that this was a sign that the man often wore pointed shoes or high heels. Another suggested that the calf muscles and toe shape could have been the result of years of ballet dancing. All of the information and a lack of evidence or leads left the Adelaide coroner, Thomas Cleland, with a mystery. Sir Cedric Stanton Hicks, a prominent professor, suggested that the cause of death was a very rare poison that decomposed quickly after the body died. This would leave no trace. The poisons were so dangerous that Hicks refused to say their names out loud in court, instead handing Cleland a piece of paper with the names written on it. There were two possibilities, Digitalis and Strophanthin. Hicks suspected that Strophanthin was the most likely culprit. Strophanthin is a glycoside that's derived from the seeds of some African plants. A glycoside is a type of molecule with a sugar bound to it in a glycosidic bond. Plants often store chemicals in inactive glycosides. Cardiac glycosides are used to treat heart failure and irregular heartbeats, but are also a common cause of poisoning, which explains why Hicks believed that that was the likely suspect. Historically, strophanthin was used to poison arrows in a Somali tribe. The poison idea made the mystery more confusing. Who could have access to these poisons and how were they related to the unknown man? The police continued their investigation to get some answers. They took a full set of fingerprints from the man and circulated them throughout Australia and eventually the whole English speaking world. Nobody came forward with any information. The police continued to escort people from Adelaide to the mortuary to try and identify the man. Some people said they knew the man from the published photos in newspapers. Some people contacted the police as distraught relatives of missing persons, but nobody recognised the body. By January the 11th, the police had exhausted every lead they had. They extended their search and began to look for personal possessions that had obviously been abandoned. They checked every hotel, dry cleaner, railway station and lost property office in Adelaide and the surrounding area. This time, they found something. On January 12th, detectives in the main Adelaide railway station were shown a brown suitcase that had been put in a cloakroom there on November 30th, the day the man was first spotted on the beach. Staff at the station couldn't remember anything about who had handed it in. The case was opened and the contents didn't really reveal many answers to the ever-increasing shadow of this mystery. It contained a reel of orange thread that was identical to the thread that had repaired the man's trousers, but there were no further clues to the man's identity. There were no stickers on the case, but a label had been taken off one side of it. 
There was a stencil kit that was similar to those used on cargo ships, a table knife with the handle cut down, and a coat with unusual stitching for Australia. Almost all the clothes in the case had no labels, but three items bore the name T. Keen. The name was a lead, and the police tried to discover who they might be. But the name seemed impossible to trace. The police concluded that someone had purposely left the names on the clothes and that they had known the man's name was not Keen. A tailor was brought in to look at the unusual stitching on the coat and identified it as a kind of feather stitch used mostly in America. This stitching suggested that the coat and potentially the owner had travelled during the war that ended a few years prior. The police had a new lead. They searched Australian shipping and immigration records in the hopes of finally gaining new information, but once again found nothing. Instead of giving up, the police doubled down on their search. They brought in another expert, John Cleland. John Cleland was a professor of pathology at the University of Adelaide. He was brought in to re-examine the body and possessions of the man. Cleland began to examine everything that had been found previously in the investigation. By April, he had looked at everything but the clothing the man had been wearing. Cleland found something new in the... Oh my God. Cleland found something new in the clothing... In the waistband of the trousers, a secret pocket had been found. It looked like it had been designed for a fob watch, but had been sewn shut in a way that made it difficult to discover. Inside the pocket was a tightly rolled scrap of paper. When unrolled, the paper revealed two words, Tamam Shud. Initially, the two words were gibberish. They didn't mean anything to anyone who saw it and it just seemed unrelated to anything. Frank Kennedy, the police reporter for the Adelaide Advertiser, saw the words and recognised them. He knew they were Persian and phoned the police to suggest that they look into a book of poetry. The book that Kennedy suggested was a 12th century work called The Rubaiyat of Omar Khayyam. The book itself had become popular in Australia due to a translation by Edward Fitzgerald. The book had existed in many editions, but police probes into finding a copy of the exact kind like the note proved impossible. They knew that the words had come from the Rubaiyat since Tamam Shud was often the last phrase in all English translations. The reason for that is because the phrase translates to, it has ended. When taken at face value, the hidden passage in the waistband suggested that the death had been self-inflicted. In fact, the police never turned the missing person investigation into a murder investigation. However, the discovery didn't help in identifying the mysterious man. While all of this was going on, his body hadn't been preserved in any way and he had begun to decompose. Arrangements were then made to bury the body, but the police had the body embalmed first to prevent the loss of potential evidence. Then they took casts of the head and upper torso 
before burying the body in a plot of dry ground specifically chosen in case the body needed to be exhumed. The plot was then sealed under concrete. As late as 1978, flowers would sometimes be discovered at the site, but nobody knew who would leave them there. In July 1949, the police finally got results in their search for the Rubaiyat. On July 23rd, a man walked into Adelaide Detective Office with a copy of the book and a story to tell. He said that in December of 1948, he and his brother-in-law had gone for a drive in the car they kept parked near Somerton Beach. His brother-in-law had found the copy of the Rubaiyat in the footwell of the back seats. Both assumed it belonged to the other and the book had remained in the glove box of the car ever since. When he read the newspaper report about the book, the men went back to the book to take a look at it. They had discovered that part of the final page had been torn out and took the book to the police. Detective Lionel Lean took the book in as evidence and discovered a phone number written on the back cover in pencil. He also discovered some letters written underneath when he looked at it with a magnifying glass. Finally, eight months after the discovery of the man, the police had a solid clue. They looked into the phone number and found it was unlisted. They did discover that it was attached to a young nurse who lived near Somerton Beach though. This woman is only known by her nickname, Jestin. She reluctantly told police that she had given the book to a man she knew during the war, giving his name as Alfred Boxall. At last, the police felt like they were close to an answer. They traced Boxall to his address in Maroubra, New South Wales. They went in search of the home, only to discover that Boxall was actually still alive. He also still had his copy of the Rubaiyat which meant that the copy the two unidentified men found in their car wasn't Boxall's, and by extension, the note in the man's waistband wasn't from Boxall's book. Years later, Jestin agreed to be interviewed again, and said that she had come home one day before the discovery to find that an unknown man had called and asked for her. When she was shown the cast of the man, she seemed like she recognised him but still firmly denied knowing who he was. The only lead left in the investigation was the impression on the back of the book from the car. It was examined under an ultraviolet light where it was discovered that there were five lines of letters. The second line had been crossed out and the first three lines were separated from the last two by a pair of straight lines with an X written over them. It's believed to be some sort of code. Code breaking without a key can be extremely difficult, but the police had to try. They finally had some evidence and they weren't about to let it slip away. The message was sent to Naval Intelligence, which held the best cipher experts in Australia. They also published the message in the press. While the Navy were working on the code, a number of amateur codebreakers began to send in their attempts at a cipher. The public's attempts were mostly useless and the Navy came back saying that the code was unbreakable. 
They said that there was an insignificant number of letters for them to make analysis-based conclusions. But they also said it was evident that each line was separate in some way. They believed that the letters didn't constitute to a simple cipher or code. They did look into other things to try and decipher it and found that the letters corresponded with a table of frequencies of initial letters in words in English. The Navy believed that the letters may have been the initial letters of words of a verse of poetry or something similar. That was the end of the initial investigation. The code was never cracked and the coroner published his final investigation results in 1958. The results were that there was no known cause of death or identity to the man. Justin died in the early 2000s without revealing why she was so shocked by the cast of the man. It appeared that the case had gone completely cold and was only barely mentioned in articles about unsolved mysteries. But little did the world know that with the rise of podcasts and the openness of being interested in true crime and unsolved cases, the case would be torn wide open by people looking for answers. Podcasters and amateur sleuths have spent a lot of time looking into the loose ends left by the police, diving into the evidence and trying to solve the mystery. Two investigators, retired policeman Jerry Feltis and Professor De- Derek Abbott from the University of Adelaide, continued to look into the mystery. Some questions have been answered, but other questions have been left in their wake. It was discovered that Justin had a son, who apparently looks a lot like the Somerton man, leading some to believe that she knew more about him than she let on. His daughter, Rachel Egan, is married to Derek Abbott, the professor who was still looking at the case. This has prompted some relatively new developments. In 2021, South Australia Police Detective Superintendent Des Bray revealed to the press that the Somerton man's body will be exhumed from under the concrete. Bray believes that there are people in Adelaide that could be related to him, including Rachel Egan, who deserves an answer to who the Somerton man is. Egan's DNA had already been tested against a strand of hair found in the plaster cast of the Somerton man's head but returned as inconclusive. Egan had believed that she was definitely his granddaughter before that, but is no longer sure due to the lack of matches in the man's incomplete DNA sequence. The body has been moved to the Forensic Science SA Lab in Adelaide, where scientists are still looking into the DNA sequence. The issue with that is that the embalming process happens to break down the proteins inside the body to prevent bacteria from consuming it. Doing so degrades DNA faster. In 1949, investigators would never have thought to preserve DNA, since DNA wasn't actually used to solve a crime until 1980, and that was in the UK. Luckily, DNA evidence has advanced far enough that we no longer need a substantial amount to create a full profile. Australia has three databases of DNA, and if a match to the Somerton man is found, detectives will attempt to find living descendants of him. Abbott isn't convinced that this will be a quick process, 
stating that similar cases elsewhere have taken a couple of years at least to find answers. I can't seem to find any article stating that the Somerton man has been revealed though, so Abbott may be right. The case of the Somerton man remains unsolved, but with advances in technology, we're closer than ever to finding answers. There are definitely theories for this one, though. The first theory is that the Somerton man is a spurned lover. The theory states that he was romantically involved with Justin. However, something happened and Justin told him she didn't want to be with him anymore and the Somerton man chose to take his own life. There's almost nothing that holds this theory together, aside from the tenuous links to Justin's son and his purported similarities to the Somerton man. The second theory is that the Somerton man had been a spy. Nobody knows who for, and nobody knows exactly what he was meant to be doing in Australia. It does explain why he has no identification and there's no information on him at all, though. The DNA analysis will likely help us discover his home, but for now, we know almost nothing, and Spy seems to line up with the lack of knowledge. The third of the main three theories is that the Somerton man was a black marketeer. Again, there's not much that holds this theory together, but if he was, it would explain how he died with no evidence to show exactly what happened. All sorts of things can be bought on the black market, so maybe it was an assassination by a rival or a disgruntled customer. But without anything to go on, we have no idea whether this is correct or not. A fourth theory has surfaced on the internet over recent years. The Somerton man was a dead man before he reached Adelaide. That doesn't really make sense, but hold on while I explain it. Byron Deverson believes that a man called Charles Mickelson is the Somerton man. He was said to have died at sea in 1940, and the death is well documented. So it's possible that this man isn't actually the Somerton man. However, Nick Pelling of Cypher Mysteries did a bit more digging and suggests that Deverson may have been on the money. A man named Horace Charles Reynolds was believed to be the Somerton man, but he died in 1953, so it definitely wasn't him. I'm sure with more digging, records of men that were lost or died at sea could be looked at for potential identifications. For now, the identity of the man from Somerton Beach is unknown. However, DNA However, DNA analysis may solve this mystery once and for all in the coming years. The story from this episode came from a Smithsonian article called The Body on Somerton Beach, an ATI article called Inside the Tamam Shoot Case and the Chilling Mystery of the Somerton Man, and a CNN article about the Somerton Man. Theories from this episode came from the ATI article, the CNN article, and a Cypher Mysteries article called 
Summerton Man, Three Main Theories. References for the episode and links to studies will be posted on social media for you to have a look at. Speaking of social media, links to those and other ways to listen are in the episode description under my link tree. You can currently find me on Facebook and Instagram. Patreon is getting an upload of one of the transcripts each week as part of the £3 tier. The link to the Patreon is also on the link tree and, as before, you're welcome to pledge more than £3 a month and I'll find something extra special for the people that do. I do have an email set up on the link tree, but it doesn't open a new email, so that's in the description of the episode too. Send me your spooky stories, unexplained events, and anything else you want me to read out. Or, if you have any corrections or issues with things that I've said, let me know and I'll address them as soon as I see the email. The next Creature feature will be out on Saturday, and next week's episode comes out on May the 11th, so hold on until then. Thank you.